You're listening to the Elephant in the Room property podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. In this episode, we're going to do a deep dive of some of the biggest aha moments that we've had in our first 25 episodes. I have to say, there's been so many revelations in this series so far, and it all started when a good friend Simon and I met, and we just started opening up the whole world of behavioural finance and property. Starting this podcast has truly been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. We've learned so much from our guests, and we're absolutely thrilled to be able to bring this information to your ears. And the feedback we've had from you listeners has been incredible. It's not called the elephant in the room for nothing. I mean, you really are saying that this is the stuff that nobody talks about. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. As Chris mentioned, it all started in episode one where we uncovered the behavioural biases that we as humans all have and how they come out to play, particularly at auction. Now, there are the obvious ones, such as social proof, but the ones that really stuck with me were loss aversion, the disposition effect, sunk cost, and the consistency effect. I mean, these really are biases that can trap us into buying the wrong property and or paying too much. I mean, let's start with loss aversion. I mean, the whole idea that the pain you feel from losing something is actually greater than the joy you feel from winning something or getting something, that just blew my mind. How many times over nearly every episode we just start saying, oh, that's loss aversion or that's sunk cost bias or (laughs) whatever it is. We're just constantly thinking about what's happening and I guess every time that we look at big decisions, we can start to pick out these points where the pain of maybe selling something when they should be not selling it or losing maybe $500 on a building and pest and not wanting to going ahead with the property still. So just never ending that we keep on finding these biases and um, the more that we talk about it. I know. I mean, the examples just come out every single time I'm, you know, talking to somebody these days. I mean, you just touched on two there. I mean, the sunk cost, the idea that, you know, when we go through this process of, of looking for property and evaluating property and then we spend money on a building a pest or we spend money on, on the conveyancing and then we feel that we need to buy the property because you don't want to lose what you've just spent. I mean, it's insane when you break it down if it's the wrong property and if you've discovered a reason why you shouldn't buy it. However, this this pool, this sunk cost bias is is really compelling. And then the consistency effect, mm. that idea that like particularly at auction when because you've started bidding, then you don't want to appear, um, what's the word? Simon used a great word in episode one. It was capricious is the word he used. So you don't want to appear capricious, and which means basically you don't want to look you know, like a flippity-gibbet. Mm. <laughs> I used to get called that at school all the time. Um, you don't want to look like you're flighty. You, mm. you know, you want to look like, well, I've made the first bid, so I've got to continue to behave in a certain way because I've already declared my hand in a way. And that's really powerful. Yeah, I mean, I, it's I, always easy for me to talk about clients that I'm dealing with and, and seeing these things play out. And there's one client at the moment and 100% he's falling for this because he's found a property, he's 
kind of befriended the agent or maybe the agent's befriended him. And they've, he's kind of said, look, I really want this. And he's now told the agent that and he's got the building and pest and he's got his friend in there and they've checked the pool and they've got the contract done. And the problem is right now he's done all these steps and the last thing he wants to do now is say, well, that's, I can't buy it. And the yeah. reason he can't buy it is because the owner wants too much. And it's so hard for him to kind of unwind all that because he's told the agent he really wants it. But mm. now it's coming to price and negotiation. The vendor wants too much. He hasn't got enough. And he's almost, he just keeps trying to push his budget up more and more just to, to basically get the deal done. So there's been so many examples as we talk to people over every episode where it starts lighting up these light bulbs in my mind where I think, well, this is actually happening. This is why it's happening. And yeah. it's helping me and hopefully you listeners to kind of help make better decisions. Because we're talking about the elephant, you know, the elephant, the room are the things that nobody talks about, but it's also the elephant being the metaphor for the subconscious mind and the fact that it drives so many of our decisions. And if we're not aware of it, how dangerous that is. And even awareness on its own is not enough. And if you go back to episode one, if you haven't listened to it, and it really steps through all of these things, it's really important that we understand this because property is such a major decision. And you know, our whole future is really hinging on us getting it right. Just lastly, I just touch on that dis disposition effect. That was so interesting, really. The idea that we are more inclined to keep bad property and sell uh, yeah. good property. I mean, there's been a lot of studies done in the share market where where share traders, you know, will, and it's, it's tied in with loss aversion, of course, but the idea that you don't really want to sell a loss-making asset yeah. because you don't want to realise that loss, you don't want to actually admit you made a mistake. Yeah. And so you will sell a an asset or a share or a house in this particular example that has made money because that will help you feel good about mm. what you've done and also you can pat yourself on the back and say what a great investor you are and sort of ignore the fact you might have other assets that aren't doing so well. Yeah, I mean, it's so, so common. I mean, there's so many beliefs that people, you know, especially on social media and things like that and in barbecues, they, they start throwing out these little myths and these little lingos. Oh, you know, don't worry, it'll always go up. You know, all property goes up <laughs> or it'll come back. Don't worry, just keep holding it. Oh, you only lose money when you sell. There's all these little things that, you know, people are gospel that people kind of act on. But, you know, reality is if it's a poor property and it's underperforming and it's falling in price, it's because fundamentally something's not right, whether it's too much supply or not enough demand or wrong location or something. So, you know, if those things don't change, you're still in the same situation. You've yeah. got a poor asset. And I just reflect on a client, another <laughs> a new client. I don't <laughs> want to do this all day, but a new client has come to me. And, um, you know, unfortunately it was from an advisor that, you know, I wish was not in business and we've you know, going to the Obamansman and et cetera like that. But, you know, we looked at her portfolio and, you know, the gut thing she said to me is, look, we'll, we'll sell these ones that have made money and we'll keep these shares, um, you know, direct shares of companies that have hopefully they come back. And, you know, it was that exact effect. You know, yeah. she was thinking I need to sell the good ones that have done well and and try to hold on to the ones that aren't. And in property, I think it it's the worst because it's the opportunity cost that you miss. You know, if you do sell that, it'll give you more borrowing capacity. It'll allow you to then maybe go and buy something else. Yeah. And then that all the growth on whatever that is, you're going to miss out on if you just keep sitting there. And then we continued with an absolutely jaw-dropping episode two when Damien Cooley revealed exactly what goes on in the mind of an auctioneer and the specific tactics he uses to get people to keep bidding. 
auctions are all about momentum. And when I can see that one buyer is starting to fall away, um, that's when I really concentrate on that better buyer and I really try and get them to increase their bid increments. So for, for example, if I can see that a buyer literally has one or two bids left in them um, and that buyer lands on one million five hundred thousand. Um, then I would be going to my better buyer and saying, "Make it a good bid. Make it one million five fifty, because I, I want to be trying to get them to to go to one million five fifty. Because I know the person at one point five in my heart. I think I know. I don't yeah. really know, but I think that I can read that buyer and say, "I reckon that's their last bid. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to my best buyer, and I'm now going to try and convince them to give me a much stronger bid." Because I reckon if they go 10, they're probably just going to buy it. So if I can get that buy to go to 50, mm-hmm. I've potentially just made my owner 40 grand. Yeah, I mean, Damien's probably someone that is probably at the top of his game, you know, at the top of the tree. You know, he's probably in the top auctioneers in the country. And um, you could see that from when we met him and, you know, and I was so thankful and not just with Damien because this was the start mm. of our journey and, uh, you know, how much he shared and how honest he was and how much he was willing to help buyers because end of the day he's been working for sellers but he was, you know, opening up the can so he could help our listeners, buyers, make better decisions and behave better at auctions and get a better result. Um, I did love how he said he cut his hair every two days, which I, <laughs> we um, we didn't talk about that but that was a little uh, tongue slip by Damien. Which, uh, he meant two weeks. He meant two weeks but... Um, <laughs> You know, I guess that was quite funny. But, um, yeah, I mean, you can see he's a true professional and, you know, you can always see that that's, um, you know, and how much that could make a big difference having a good auctioneer versus a poor one. It's just like every professional. The difference is of having someone at the top of the game versus someone who maybe not. So Yeah, uh, it's actually very interesting because I think bidders need to understand that auctioneers practice, good auctioneers do. I mean, when we interviewed Tim Heaviside, um, you know, it was really clear that there's an enormous amount of work goes on. He's had auctioneer coaches. He actually, re, you know, rehearses this stuff. This is no accident. They get up there and they manage to pull bids out of these buyers. And, and yet the buyer completely at the because they're not an expert. And the buyer quite often hasn't. Some buyers have never even been to an auction before. Yeah. I mean, Tim was another great episode as well, you know, just like Damien. But, you know, I guess if you were going to buy an auction, you know, you definitely, before you even think about even going to an auction, just listen to, you know, what the good auctioneers are doing and studying and um, the tactics that they're going to use to get your elephant going. And um, that's <laughs> what an auction is. It's all about momentum, which Damien said. And they just want to get you started and get the elephant dancing. Absolutely. Look, I seriously think that if anybody bids at auction without first listening to this episode, they're absolutely mad. We've also had many great sales agents come reveal their methods and frustrations in dealing with buyers. And they've all said that buyers need to work with them. There's no point in getting them offside. Yeah. I mean, we saw that with every kind of episode with, you know, Mark and Matt and Michael, Marnie, um, you know, Peter Gordon, like there's been so many different, you know, agents that we have had in here. And, you know, we, I do love when they do open up a bit more about, you know, what they're trying to become is more of a trusted advisor, but also help work with buyers. And Matt on our, on that episode, um, really said that he would, you know, spend 15 minutes or half an hour with a buyer that is new to the area and kind of talk them through the suburb. And that's just one way that, you know, good agents are kind of helping buyers or working with buyers. And um, whether they're going to be 100% in your best interest and there to guide you and give you good advice, you know, end of the day, they're conflicted. They're there to sell a product and they can only sell what they've got in their little, you know, tool bag. But, you know, they are there and they do have a lot of knowledge there. So if you do want to, I guess, know a market better, you know, it's, I guess it's tapping into that, but you know, always being a little bit reserved on how far you go. 
<laughs> you know, there's also a lot of consensus around why, when, and how they'll sell a property before auction. I mean, Matt Hayes in episode three actually summed it up perfectly. Because in many instances, <laughs> and this is my experience, and yes, sometimes there's a premium, right? And you get a better price before auction, sometimes. But I would say in the overwhelming case, and probably more so in a current market, you're taking it because there's no other buyer and you have to get that deal done or otherwise that thing's not going to sell. So This is a golden elephant in the room. <laughs> content, so, I love this. Uh, the auction is not the mechanism that achieved the, the right amount. It's actually the private treaty negotiations beforehand with one buyer so if you took that one buy to auction, that's not selling. Yeah, I think, you know, we've got clearance rates, you know, so low at the moment and, you know, but there's still lots of properties that are still going to auction and people are saying, why would you list your property for auction now? You know, why would you do it? Um, and I guess it just gives them that sense of urgency. There's a date, there's a line in the sand. And when you've got buyers that are very on sitting on their hands right now, um, I guess the, the even just the thought of it going to auction and they may lose it makes them want to actually not lose it and that loss aversion is kicking yeah. in again. Yeah. Um, and that's enough for the agent to kind of say, well, you know, if you go rock up on Wednesday, I've got other buyers and you might lose it and why don't you make an offer now and then we can take it to the vendor. And it's all that smoke and mirrors. And that's been one of, you know, a big learning for me actually through this process is kind of opening up that lid of how the agent really gets you moving. So um, I, mean, I think that's a, it's a, it's a great tactic that they use, but you've got to be careful not to fall for it because in that case, if you did go to auction, you know, what would happen, Veronica? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you did go to auction most of the time in the current market, you are going to buy better than if you make an offer prior. Not all the time, though, and this is the subtlety. You know, the, the, everything is nuanced. But, I mean, there were many other agents also who were happy to reveal the backroom machinations around pre-auction offers, particularly in a buyer's market. I mean, Michael Harris in Episode 11 was also very forthcoming. You know, he started the conversation about how he handles buyers who want to make an offer in a hot market, and he very clearly explained why they pivot in different conditions. <laughs> I try to give examples to a buyer of why they should reconsider about coming to an auction floor rather than getting into a conversation about an offer. Now, obviously, as the market changes, it becomes very different. Now, we're very happy to talk about offers, probably. Yeah, so this is where mm. buyers beware. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you know. If the agent's suggesting an offer or, oh, yeah, or pushing be, in that direction, then, you yeah, know, go to auction. Like, <laughs> that works with me, sort of said, can I, can I maybe suggest, like, no, don't do that because you're giving the, you're, you're basically telling your purchaser that it, you probably don't have a lot of competition and you're losing the ability to negotiate for your vendor. I guess there's always going to be tactics, right? Like if you want to get a deal done, no matter what industry you work in, um, you're going to play things a bit different every time. And um, that's what the good agents will do. You know, I guess what's probably going to be interesting is seeing a lot of agents go right now is go through a period where they can't find buyers and, you know, they can't sell property and what tactics they have to learn now to deal with this kind of slowing, falling, dropping market. I reckon there's probably very few agents that have been through 2003 to 2010 no. um, where it was a bit tough. So, you know, I guess they'll be all doing learning new tactics now. I imagine I'll 2019 will be a real estate um, education sessions all over the country. <laughs> and there's be a fair attrition rate too. I, I, I've already seen it. You know, there's the young ones that came, and I say young as in young to the industry, though it doesn't necessarily mean age-wise young. Young at heart. Young at, well, just young in terms of experience. They've come into the industry in a boom and they're like, oh, this is all too hard. I'm out of here. I'm going to go find the next booming industry. Don't know what that is. But um, the thing is that you'll get people that will leave the industry because they, they're not up to it. 
are up to learning these new, te- you know, new skills, basically. But, you know, and, and certainly when we're dealing with, with agents, we can see which ones don't know how to deal with it, which ones do. Yeah, I think it's happening everything related to property. So, um, you know, I guess with, you know, let's say there's less transactions just more broadly, mm. um, that's real estate agents, that's conveyances, yeah. that's the state government revenue, um, it's mortgage brokers. It's, you know, and so I can already see it in, in mortgage brokers world. There was a post online last week and I read it and he goes, I've had enough, I'm over it, I'm going back to the corporate world. Um, I can't I can't deal deal with banks anymore, and you know it's just a sign of where because mm. things are much tougher this year. You're yep. actually having to lift your game, and you're having to learn and how to be better at what you do to get through this tougher lending environment. And you know you can't just write loans for fun, basically, which is what they potentially could do in the past. So I think in in um, many parts of the property market, we're going to see a, you know a pullback of people who aren't there just for a short term buck and not willing to invest in their kind of knowledge, I guess. Not a bad thing in re- in reality. I don't like hard times, but at the same time, they do flush out all of that. So it's yes. pretty good. You know, many of the other interviews that we had with agents also revealed other surprises. I mean, remember our chat with you and Morton? My father-in-law says, says to me once, said, Yon, I don't get it. Like, you know, when you're selling a property, you offer a price except the price It's that simple. And I, I was <laughs> often like, I wish it was that simple. Like whenever you have humans in it. But I remember when I started selling real estate and it was a different world then when, you know, we did hold price information and we would go in and I would go and talk to a vendor and they'd say to me, Ewan, tell me the truth. And my father, who's in our business, always said to me, you know, son, you've always got to lay straight in your bed at night. Like we're from the country and that was his big thing, right? So they'd say, Ewan, tell me the truth. And I'd look at them and I'd say, oh, do I really want to do that? They'd say, no, tell me the truth. So I'd say, okay, I'll tell you the truth. Your property's worth a million dollars or whatever it was. And then the next person would come in and they'd tell them 1.2 or 1.3 and, and it was a lie. And they would say to me, well, Ewan, we've gone with the other guy because they could sell better than you. And I'm like, could they? Or yep. they just lied better. And yep. you believe them. And then in four weeks' time after that, they're coming back and say, oh, you and I say, what did you do? Oh, we sold it for a million. I was like, that's exactly what you said. We should have gone with you. Now, that, that's a very, very frustrating situation if you're an honest person, right, which I deem myself to be yeah. so. So we all amended our behaviour to be able to deal with that. And there was times you go, you need to tell the vendor what they want to hear and then deal with the truth later. <laughs> because at the end of the day, the guy who said 1.3 was, he's the one driving around in the Mercedes with a commission and I'm still in yeah. my secondhand suit, you know. <laughs> so, You're not feeding your kids by telling that's the truth. Right. And, and I found that very hard, right. The beauty of today is now all that information's out there is that when someone asks about price now, so we go back to that situation, you do that in 2018. In fact, one of my guys just relayed exactly this story to me yesterday where the, the owner would go, well, you and what's it worth? A million dollars. Oh, I agree with you because I've been to university and I can run an <laughs> Excel spreadsheet and I reckon you're right. And the man who goes in there and says 1.3, the vendors now are going, well, I've assessed that information. I think you're lying to me already. So the beauty of today is that we're actually in the era of the point of difference for an agent is good character. Like, can you believe that? Like, like it's now, it's <laughs> now good it. character. No, yeah. that's fantastic. I mean, that's such a good line, isn't it, really? And I think um, it's timely and it's what, I guess in every industry that that's what people are looking for is that kind of true trusted professional. But, you know, I do feel for real estate agents because, um, you know, I did know about this a lot in the investment world is that, you know, if you, you would most likely pick the advisor who basically lies to you. And um, I, I 
that with clients. I've talked about that for clients for years where, you know, if you went into an office for an advisor and one advisor said, look, I don't know where the world's going. I'll just give you market returns. One says I can beat the market by 3%. You're most likely going to go for the one that says they can beat the market, even though there's so much research out there to prove that that's probably not the case. So the, the advisor giving you more the realistic kind of advice there and just trying to guide you the best is not the one you're going to pick. And I think that's exactly the case with real estate agents. I think you know, most people, um, you know, go for the agent that believes in their house the most by off yeah. pretending they can get the biggest price. Well, so. we all want to be rescued, don't we? You know, and, and we want the easy way out. And um, and I know when we interviewed Lorna Patton about the wishful thinking episode, you know, we, we talked about the idea it all stems from not feeling good enough, mm. you know, which is pretty sad that we think that way, but it's, it's really prevalent and it's prevalent throughout a lot of us unless we actually address that. So, yes, it's a bit... Uh, it, it's, it is really hard too as an agent, um, and I know myself because obviously being a sales agent, but even as a buyer's agent, I, I don't use the same bullshit lines that other buyer's agents will use. And when I was a sales agent, I didn't use the same bullshit lines that other sales agents would use. And I know that there's times I lose business because of that, but I'd still rather sleep straight in bed. Yeah, I think there's, and that was so great when we met Shannon and John. Yeah. And you and you can really see that these, you know, they are trying to, you know, change the industry and trying to lift the standard for real estate. You can see that it's also a career for them, and it's not like a short-term win. And they're yeah. really trying to make a an impact and and change the way that real estate professionals are seen in the market. So, you know, it's amazing to kind of see where things are going, but you know, it's always a slow moving curve, I guess. It's also interesting what he says about the information age and how that's changing the way that we all approach property. I mean, to be honest, I think Ewan sort of gives vendors a little bit too much credit there in the sense that he's saying, well, they've got the information at their fingertips and they then know how to apply it. I do think that he's being a little bit overly positive then because I still think the emotion does kick in. And, and even though I'm seeing the evidence that, you know, my property may be worth X, I still in my deepest, darkest, you know, the pits of my stomach, I want it to be worth why. And so I'm still going to be looking, that's a confirmation bias, I'm going to be looking for little bits and, and snippets and nuggets of information that might help me confirm what I truly want to be the case rather than really what is the case. But there is a lot of information out there and and certainly haven't we lot of, learned a lot about data and research. I mean, we've been privileged to talk to so many experts, Kent Lardner, Luke Metcalf, John Lindemann, Frank Gelber, Pete Wargent, Peter Koulazos, even Jane Slack-Smith does, you know, is really big on research and I have, hope I haven't left anybody out. But I really remember the fascinating discussion with Luke Metcalf around machine learning and AI and how the elephant can make assumptions that might be a little off beam and really how research is great and information is great, but we need to know how to interpret it. It's the ability to see beyond if you simply come to the suburb and take an impression. So one example here is buyers agents will tell you that distance to train station is a predictor of growth. Mm. And sure enough, if you just look at that alone, if you just asked an analyst, uh, what's the relationship between train stations and growth? They would say, yes, it's better to buy near a train station because there is growth. Yeah. But I put that into the machine. That was one of 70,000 different predictors. Mm -hmm. The machine did not use that data. Mm. It was not used in the model. And it was a pretty good model. It was better than some humans out there, mm. right? So why would that be? I, I had to look deeply into it. And what I found was it was making use of the census data 
specifically people saying that they were taking the train to work. Right. So what that speaks to is that the computer, it doesn't really know, it's not really conceptualizing these people going to work like we do, but all it cares about is getting the best outcome, the most accuracy. So it's fine tuning for the most accuracy. And my interpretation going back to using my human elephant brain is that uh, the buyer's agent who comes into a place they don't know, they see a train, they go tick, that ticks my box. Simple. There's only Mm -hmm. a certain number of things that a human brain can process. Uh, Whereas the machine, if it's got access to actually how many people use the train, it will use it because some, not all train stations are created equal and that information might not be available to uh, the buyer's agent. Very interesting, right? And there's been so many snippets like that over many episodes and, um, but I think that's what all the best people do in property is they aren't looking at, you know, the big one market property. They go and they cut the market down. They keep cutting it and cutting it and cutting it. And really they just think about, well, this is the data, but how do people behave and how do people respond and what do people do? And that's what all the best people that we speak to understand is that property is really about people. It's not so much about just, you know, pure market dynamics of supply and demand. And that's, um, you know, it's been something that's always keeps popping up. Yeah. And then look, there are some distinctly common threads, loud and clear from so many of our guests. I mean, one, property investment is a long-term gain. Otherwise, it's speculation not investing. I mean, particularly when we talked to John Lindemann, you know, he said, well, property investment shouldn't always be long-term, but the reality is he's talking about people that are going for hotspots and needing to understand you've got to have an exit strategy and you've got, that's got to be part of it. You just don't buy and think you keep it all forever. Um, but in reality, that's taking a huge amount of risk. And so that is speculating, not investing. Yeah, exactly. I think, and people really need to take, you know, understand that. It's a great line, right? Investing is mm. long-term and speculation is short-term. But once you break that down, like long-term in my view is like 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Now, it sounds crazy, but, you know, if you are in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, you could own a property for 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, I'd really challenge listeners to think really long-term and think, well, why would I ever sell this property? If this is a really good property that I buy today, I really want to hold it for as long as possible. And that could be till I'm in my seventies or eighties and you know, such a long time frame. When everyone says, start talking about, you know, oh, you should buy in this hotspot and things like that. Now we're talking speculation and that when you're investing with speculation in the property market, it's highly risky because the transaction costs are just so high. Yeah. Um, whereas you buy in the share market, your transaction cost could be $10 a trade. Um, so, you know, it's very cheap to go and speculate in the, in the share market. But, but also with- I can speculate $5,000 in the share market. Whereas with property, I've got to speculate, you know, well, my, say my hundred thousand dollars as a deposit and then, and then the rest that I'm borrowing and the commitment to that borrowing. So it's yeah. it, the implications and the, the, the consequences are massively, massively bigger. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, you're leveraging it. You, know, yeah. you could be leveraging it one time, 20 times, or, you know, you could actually, which a lot of investors do, they borrow every single dollar because mm. it makes sense from a tax point of view yeah. if you've got home debt. So, and I would, you know, encourage people to do that if they had home debt equity in their home, then borrow every dollar for these investments. So what you're doing is basically got a 100% leveraged investment putting, uh, and if it goes up, great. But if it goes down 5%, 10%, you lose a lot of money. So be really careful mm. when with speculation because it all comes comes down to you have to sell to get out because it's not something that's a great long-term investment. We're just trying to make a, a short-term win. And I think the last year 
it really has really showed how you know people speculating in Sydney, Melbourne for the last you know in short periods would really be hurting. Um, so, but then also it will be interesting to see what other hot growth markets that have done well over the last couple of years. You know, if we come back and look at the figures in two years' time, are those you know returns still as strong? I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, when you're buying into you know, a an investment property, everyone wants to feel like they immediately made some gain because it makes them feel good about themselves. But, you know, that's very, very short-term thinking and really that's crazy. I mean, the other thing that came through loud and clear with so many of our interviewees is that urban areas within 10K radius of Sydney and Melbourne are the safest long-term bets. And this just came through loud and true through so many episodes and so many different experts and so many researchers and so many experienced people that, and and I'm not saying, and none of them are saying you can't make money elsewhere, but it it comes down to that low risk and long-term. And it's not just me because that's where I buy in, in terms of Sydney. You know, I'm happy to know that <laughs> I wasn't wrong. It's not confirmation bias because we haven't actually prepped anyone before yeah. they come in here. It's just that the the logic and the history and the data all supports that. Yeah, I mean, that's it's so true, right? I think I guess one thing that probably I've probably changed my view over the last 12 months just because of what's happened with APRA, what's happening potentially with negative gearing is, you know, not only is it in the inner rings um, where there is limited supply mm-hmm. of property, but I also have to really focus on the demand side now, make sure that the demand who want to live in that property or own that property is really people who want to own it, basically. It's owner occupiers rather than investors. And, you know, I think buying for the investor market right now, when you've got all this, uh, everyone trying to kill the investor market and, you know, the banks not being able to lend to the investor market and no foreign investment, you've really, you know, you're asking for trouble. And so I think not only is it in that inner 10K ring, but it has to suit owner-occupiers. And that doesn't have to be, um, you know, two kids, high-income families. It could be one-child families. It could be, you know, cashed-up downsizers. It could be, you know, there's many different types of owner-occupiers. But really you'd want people on higher incomes um, or with a lot of cash. And look, that... We discussed that with Jared McCabe. He's a Melbourne buyer's agent and we talked about that, those principles and the idea of multifaceted buyer pool and, and that's all about that too. The owner-occupiers underpinning an area but many, many different types of owner-occupiers that would want that type of property. But really fundamentally it comes down to the importance of choosing quality assets and A-grade property is still doing well even in a buyer's market. I was at an auction only... Sh- a few weeks ago, and it was an absolute A-grade property. There were 12 registered bidders. There were six of them actually got their hand in the air and it sailed over reserve. It's like the good old days, you know? And it's like, why can that happen when everything else in that suburb passed in on that Saturday? Well, it happens because all the buyers are going to that quality property and it's scarce. And even though it's a buyer's market, they can have whatever they want, basically, at almost whatever price they want, they don't want those B-grade, C-grade properties. And that's the point. So if you buy an A-grade asset... It's. It doesn't matter when you buy it because at the end of the day, there's always demand as long as you get the location right. Yeah, I think the market, the results in Sydney this year have, have really kind of proven the risks of buying, not only in good areas, but buying assets that are quite poor. Um, and I think they're the ones who have really seen the biggest falls mm. um, and they're, they're, you know, they've, they've kind of just done everything they can to get into the market in 2015. Paid over the odds because they kept missing out at auction. Um, and now they're the properties that have come back 20, yep. 20%. But, um, you know, even just right like this week, right, a client's trying to buy a property in Melbourne via a buyer's agent. And, um, you know, there's two properties and 
they're both good assets. Um, but the one property that's probably the best asset is on a great street. It's a great block. It's a great frontage. It's a great price. Suits families. Um, this is going for a stupid price mm. and we can't. And so even though the buyer's agent wants to buy it, it's gone well over budget yeah. um, and there's a competition for it prior to auction um, and all these high offers are coming. And so, you know, if you talked about the Melbourne market, it's collapsing, it's falling yep. over. Well, this property, you know, in Northcote, I was just using where it is, yep. it's a great asset and it suits everyone. So um, even in this kind of down market, there's properties that are still getting, and this price they're going to get is actually more than what they could last year. Yeah. So and look, I've happens. seen growth. I mean, we actually bought a property in Balmain for a client a few weeks ago, and that had sold in 2016, and it actually sold this time around for more than what it sold for in 2016, and we weren't the only buyer on it. Um, we still got it for what we believe is a good price, but it, that that shows that different certain assets grow in value mm. over a time when everything else is falling, and I think that that this is a message that. Everyone needs to understand because you're not going to hear on the 7.30 report. You're not going to hear this on 60 Minutes. You're not going to hear any of that because they're talking about big, you know, massive numbers, doom and gloom, everything's falling off a cliff. It's not true. It's not true. But it just puts the magnifying glass, the spotlight on this absolute necessity to understand that a quality asset is what you need to be buying when you're buying property. Yeah, and I guess that's one thing is that um, we all like to think that we're never going to sell it or our life's going to continue and, you know, we can ride the down waves just as much as the up waves. Unfortunately, though, um, life changes and what we need in the future can change. So, you know, the big risk I think with property is that, yes, it's a long-term investment, but the big risk is if you have to sell it in the yeah. short term. And, you know, if you don't buy a quality asset and it doesn't go very well in the short term, you have to sell it because of, you know, death in the family or divorce or yep. aged care or like, I don't know. There's some reason why you have to, you lose your job. You get a transfer. Um, or transfer, knows, yeah. um, you know, you just, money just gets tight or repairs. There's sometimes why, a reason why you have to sell. And I guess it's just don't buy a quality asset. You're taking a lot of risk for really no return in the short term. Yeah. And look, another thing that, that came up in a lot of episodes was that chasing yield is like fool's gold. Yeah. I mean, I've never liked it. I openly say it. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, positive cash flow just doesn't work for me at all. I can't understand how, I know how people get sold the dream. Oh yeah. You know, if you can buy a property, it doesn't cost me anything. I can make some money from day one and you know, it's positive and I'm making money. It, it sounds amazing and it's easy to sell. And I really encourage people not to fall for it. The biggest reason why is that, you know, if you're getting a high yield, it means that you're getting a very high rent um, compared to the price of the property. And I'd also argue that very few properties, even after that, are positive cash flow. I agree. It, even at 8% yep. yield, you're not actually positive if you borrowed 105% of it and in, in the first, say, 5 or 10 years of ownership. You're actually not positive. That's right. And you shouldn't be... And you need and 8% to is huge. Exactly. And you need to be doing the numbers at a loan of 105%, not a loan at 80% putting 20% deposit down to make the numbers work because you put in 20% deposit down, there's an opportunity cost of what you could do with that money, i.e. pay <laughs> off your home loan. That's another thing. And you need to, with the new depreciation rules, you know, I think there's very few properties that are positive cash flow. But let's say you do get it and you make a tiny, tiny amount per week on that, 
if you're working, which you probably are because that's why you borrowed the money, you're going to have to pay tax on it. So um, you're going to make literally nothing. You know, you might even be able to get a dinner out each week. That's how much you're going to make. Well, I did, I did some projections. And I can't remember the exact figures. It was something like if, you know, if you got an extra $100 a week rent and you whack that in the bank, I think after 10 years, you'd, it'd add up to, I think, Oh, 20 odd, grand. Yeah, yeah, but 26,000 or whatever. Yeah. You know, and it's like, okay, but if you're getting no capital growth over that 10 year period, so you've got an extra 26, 30 grand in the bank, yippee, that you've got to pay tax on, as opposed to if you bought a, a really good asset and, and it's, you know, good possibility it could double in value in 10 years and you take out all your costs, you know, maybe if you bought an $800,000 property that's, you know, it's a ripper and, you know, you're probably sitting on about $600,000 worth of equity after 10 years and if, yeah. and that's after taking out your inverted commas losses. So, you know, that's yeah. what it's all about really. And I guess what they kind of push is they say, well, you know, and there's some serial offenders here and um, they might be listening to the podcast and if you are, that's it. cool. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they, they push a, qual- a quantity strategy over yeah. a quality strategy mm. and, you know, I've been doing 100% with property investors since 2012, I've seen thousands of portfolios. The quantity strategy never works out. No. And the people who have done well in those situations, they've usually leveraged off their home and they've, you know, had a lot low debt on their home and their home's been the asset that keeps on going up. Um, and maybe one property that they did get lucky on, um, they timed the market and they've held it for 10, 15 years now. But the rest of them are just all kind of, you know, and you can see it in the magazines, the, you know, the, the magazines, you know, you look at their portfolios that go in there and, you know, they're, they're usually quite poor. And, well, they're mortifying. Know, and um, over complex and too much risk and getting no real return. And um, and quite often a lot of brand new stuff. So they yeah. buy it off the plan and then it goes up in value and they get it revalued and they borrow against it and they do it again. Well, there's uh, marketing to send in those magazines, right? And so mm. those magazines can't really be anti-new because that's who pay for their advertisements. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about talking about the elephant in the room. That's the elephant in the room there. I think the final thing with positive cash flow, and um, if anyone is thinking about this, feel free to reach out for Veronica and I any time about this if you're thinking about actually buying something because, you know, we'd love to kind of stop you sometimes in your tracks potentially to help you think it through before you sign a contract. But with positive cash flow as well, it's all based on current interest rates. And this is where it's kind of really bit mm, into um, yeah. investors in the last two years because – Investors used to get the same rate as homeowners and they used to get the same rate if they were going interest only versus principal and interest. Now, investors are lucky to get 45 to 4.8% interest only investment rate now. And this is with a cash rate of 1.5%. Now, if the cash rate did rise 1%, you're talking the interest rate may go to 6%. uh, Or, you know, if it raises 1.5%, it could go to 6.5%, 7%. And I, I guarantee that those properties are no longer positively geared. Oh, not only that, but quite a lot of these positive geared properties are actually only positively geared because they're on interest-only loans. And so they're not, are not even paying down the capital, let alone getting any growth. Yeah. So, you know what, they're going to just bank all the extra little little tiny scraps of extra rent at the end of the period when, uh, when the bank says, right, you're going to have to pay more now. And then they're forced to sell and they'll end up behind where they were when they started. It's really, really terrible. Yeah. I mean, the interest only kind of cliff that is coming in 2019, 2020, it will absolutely smash these you know, people who have gone out and built, you know, big investment portfolios but haven't got good enough assets where it's worthwhile actually stretching yourself to keep paying down the loan because, you know, if, if you won't – investors will not have the ability to kind of pay down investment properties and pay off the home. And there's, um, there's a lot of talk about this sort of, you know, the interest-only periods expiring and, and, oh, my God, you know, 20 
19 is going to be dramatically terrible. That's going to be the end of the property market. And I think what we've got to actually talk about here is what sort of property is this going to impact on? And where it's going to impact, where it's really going to bite, it's not going to bite in a suburb with, with lots of established properties where people are bought at all different times and they've bought under different circumstances, borrowed different amounts of money, and some are on principal interest, some are on interest only, and, and some will expire in 10 years, some in two, all that sort of stuff. When you go and buy in a brand new apartment complex and you, you and 80% <laughs> of the owners are all investors, or you're buying a house and land package, 50Ks out for the city and the same deal, yep. you know, you and 80% of the buyers were all investors. You and 80% of the other buyers have all borrowed similar amount of money. You've probably gone interest only. Your interest only periods are probably all going to expire around about the same time. You've all got really the same properties. There's no scarcity internally. Like all the houses are the same, all the apartments are the same. You're all under the same financial pressures. Those that can't afford to hold on or those that decide to bail will all list their properties at the same time. And buyers will have choice and buyers will be looking at them. And it's already starting to happen in these these newer developments and, and, uh, you know, outer areas and and these, you know, high-rise developments where the buyer's like, right, well, I could have that one there, that one there, that one there. They're all roughly the same. I just want to work out which owner is under the most amount of pressure. Who can I screw the most for price? And that is the sort of area and type of property that's going to suffer big time. And that's because you've got all this stuff happening, same demographic to same people, same time period. Yeah, 100% agree. Like the the interest-only kind of conversation it's 100% just investors. It's not owner-occupiers. And the owner-occupiers are already switching to principal and interest, you know, in train loads, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, and so the the portion of loans that are on interest only now is, is collapsing, but that's because homeowners are all switching to P&I. And every loan that goes through now um, with the banks is all on homeowners are all going through as principal and interest. So all new loans are principal and interest for homeowners. It's just all these investors that have bought know, investor stock mm. on interest only, and they're all in areas where there's lots of other investors. They're the, where everyone's going to say, hang on a sec, I can't afford this anymore. I'm not making much money. Uh, I can't afford the principal repayments. I'm going to sell. And the problem is that if everyone's thinking the same thing, it's kind of a race to the bottom. And this is the discussion is not had on the 730 report and, you know, all those shows, the news shows that are talking about this, they're not having a discussion about that. They're doing the, the, the woe is me, bleeding heart stories where they're going to interview people that are affected by this. And I do, I do feel genuine um, oh, angst for them. You know, they're in awful situations. But the thing is, a little bit of research could have helped them before going along and following the herd. And now the herd's all going to fall off the cliff together, you know, but the herd all went and bought this stuff together. And this is the problem with groupthink, really. What I, yeah, I, I love that we probably, you know, we've been, I've been very passionate or anti-new from I started in, <laughs> you know, looking at property in, in 2012, really. And I just fortunately, I got kind of good training really early on and met buyers agents and really quickly got understood the foundations or mm. the fundamentals behind it. But what I love in 2018, it's all coming out. And this wasn't coming out in 2016, no. 2017. 2000 year was the eighth year, I believe, where off the plan investments basically been shone the light on. And, you know, in the 730 report, we keep going back to it just because it's been on recently. And um, they actually started talking about off the plan properties. And every day when I flip the paper and you know, and it's off the plan, off the plan, off the plan. And people are switching on, which is, you know, making me very happy um, because, you know, they're the people who have taken the biggest risk and are, are feeling the most pain and are going to feel the most pain. And so I think that, um, you know, that was to me one of the biggest elephants in the rooms that I'm so glad that we're talking about. 
Yeah, and it's only one of the many risks of buying off the plan, though. And how many of our guests, unprompted, have actually discussed these risks? I mean, in episode 10, Michael Ferrier from ION was very forthcoming about the potential cost of defects in new builds. And that's simply something people are not expecting when they buy brand new. They think that insurance is going to pay for them. New apartments, are they free of these big special levies or, you know, are they some of the more guilty ones? No, sadly they're not. And look, some of the biggest problems we see are in new builds. And what happens is is a bit of a rhythm to this, is that all of the units get sold, people move in, there's a defects process, which is normal. And then once all those defects are identified, then there can sometimes be legal action between the developer and the builder and then both of those people in the owner's corporation about who is obliged to fix those defects. Mm -hmm. Now, we often see these defects running into the millions of dollars and often when it gets settled with the developer, there's still a shortfall and the owners will have to pay for that. So you do see special levies in pretty new buildings. And water penetration, I've got to say, is probably the most common problem that we see. And that can be a major issue. If you if none of the balconies are sealed and water's getting into the units, you can imagine that's the problem. People buy an apartment, a new place, and think, wow, I've got this brand new place to move into. And then rains. what well, rains. And then there's also there's work got to go on then for the next two years to fix problems. Yeah, or the bathrooms um, start leaking or, yeah. or pools on roofs. What do you think about them? Well... <laughs> Yeah, gravity. Water, yeah. <laughs> gravity will do it. Yeah, water takes the path of least yeah. resistance. It's uh, I just don't like them personally. <laughs> yeah, so, so look, it, I mean, it's it's easy to generalise, um, but yes, we do see a lot of issues with, with with newer buildings. I think when people start to realise that that new developments are being built to make money, and the the way you make money is you build it quick and you use cheap materials, and then. The way that contracts are structured for builders and developers, and it's all about time pressure. And um, unfortunately, corners get cut, and um, you know the better material doesn't get used because it costs more. And so, the biggest problem with a lot of the stuff that's being built, a lot of it's been built for overseas investors as well, or people that are interstate that are never even going to look at it. Um, and when you're buying an investment, you care about the price. You don't care if it's well built. You just want to be able to rent it out. And so, I well, might- I think a lot of people would just assume they're all well built. Yeah, just because it's new, nothing should go wrong with it because it's new, and it's an assumption that a lot of people have. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, you only have to go through a drive through areas where there's lots of high rises and think that was new. That was new two years ago, but look at it now. Yeah, look there's at a lot of those. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I, I think you know, even when you're buying new house and land packages and you're buying, you know, new townhouses in the middle ring. Um, it's new, it's untested. Um, you know, I've just got a client just recently and, you know, the nightmare they've had to go through, they bought a brand new house in a premium suburb in the eastern suburbs of Sydney um, because they wanted new. Because it was new, it's untested. Mm, yeah. And, you know, they bought it off a builder who'd bought it off a developer or something like that, um, but they were the second buyer. So they weren't actually buying it directly from the builder. Now, this house was basically, you know, two years later, it was unlivable. Um, and they've had to go through years of fighting to, to win their money back. And, um, you know, I, you know, so you've really got to be careful when you're buying new because the property is brand new. It hasn't been, hasn't been tested yeah. for storms and things like that. And so when you're buying something that is established, it's a solid house, it's been there for 60, 80 years, it's probably a good idea that a good chance it's going to be around for another 60, 80 years. <laughs> now, I think Amanda Farmer was even more forthcoming in episode 25. I mean, she's a strata lawyer. She actually says that she sees some contracts 
or new properties that make her want to vomit. <laughs> and she actually used that word, didn't she? Yes, she did. Oh, look, um, I would not buy a new strata building simply because of building defects, sadly. Um, mm. Look, we're, we're in Sydney. I don't know that it's much better anywhere else, but we still have this plague of poorly built buildings. And um, I'm sure some developers are better than others, but um, I just have seen too many buildings, too many lot owners go through a process which lasts for years. Mm getting defects fixed and ultimately they might all get it done and it might be up to scratch and the developer might come back and do it or they might get some homeowner's warranty that will pay for it so they're not necessarily out of pocket but my gosh that takes over your life for a very Mm. long time. Um, I have had clients who have bought off the plan before so I said I don't do much conveyancing but when I do it's often off the plan uh, contracts because they are more complicated and Mm. do need more attention uh, and it's very important for any listeners who are thinking about buying off the to make sure so, so you true. get proper mm, yep. advice and you're buying strata, get it from a strata lawyer. Why um, are those contracts complicated? <laughs> look, they're, they're, they're standard form. You're dealing with uh, a very uh, different level of bargaining power yep. on each side. So you're dealing yep. with developers who have worked with uh, often large law firms and they're pulling out the template and you ask for changes and they say, no, get lost. Yeah. We've, got, yeah. we've got 20 more people who are ready to sign. Uh, at least they, they used to, maybe not in this market. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one big danger with buying off the plan is, of course, I think, Chris, you've written about this, uh, the valuation and mm. getting finance. So you'll get your finance approved uh, and then when the strata plan comes off, say two or three years down the track and you're about to settle, the bank's going to go and look at that property, is going to value it, and is going to say, well, this is how much we think it's worth, and yes, that matches what we approve for you, or it doesn't. And I had a yeah. client very recently uh, signed up. Uh, it's an iconic building in Sydney, and we're head over hills for it. They signed a contract for $2 million uh, three years later, have gone to settle and the bank came in at 1.6. So, okay, what happens then? Yeah, uh, <laughs> scramble, uh, talking to me, talking to contacts that I might have to get them some finance, talking to different banks. And ultimately, I think in that case, the bank uh, was able to value it again and got a little bit closer to the amount that they needed. Wow. But terrifying. Absolutely that you terrifying. Could sign a contract, you know, three years ago, and the property is just not worth that anymore. And I think we're going to see that. And Chris, you probably have more to say about this than me, but more, um, more and more, I think we're going to see in in this market. Settlement risk is probably something that you know not everyone even thought even existed. Did the uh, term even exist? You know, more than a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's like, well, why would you not be able to settle? I've got the deposit. Well, the games have changed, right? So you need a bigger deposit. You can't borrow as much money as you could when you thought you were buying this off the plan high-rise apartment, you know? When it settles, the property market's fallen. So what you paid is actually more than what it's worth today. And, you know, a valuer's not you know, not valuing it, taking a low valuation. The value is being real. The value is giving it a real valuation based on what it's worth today. And banks can't lend you on what it was worth when you signed the contract. So it makes sense that, you know, we're going to have problems. And, um, you know, I think in 2019, 2020, um, settlement risk is going to be something that's basically banded about everywhere because everyone who bought properties in 2016, 2017 um, are going to get those properties in a year or two and they're they not also, going to be able to settle. And when they bought... 
not even just about the valuations, the lending landscape was completely and utterly different. So they thought, oh, I've got no problems getting that money. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, banks were always risk on. So 2000, all through the boom, when markets rising, banks want to just take on credit. When markets are falling, you know, that means that the bank's taking risk, you know. And this so, is chicken and the egg, though, because the reason that the market's falling now is because people can't get credit. Yeah, but then, yeah, well, it's true, exactly. But, you know, I think why would you lend money when the market's falling on, and especially in assets and areas that are likely to fall more? And the banks know where those risks are. They always never used to give loans more than 80% for inner ring kind of city properties that but we don't want to go in the inner ring market. We know it's too dangerous. But that 80% rule is spreading. And, and that is interesting because I know that some years ago there was, a, I think the postcode 2000 was like black banned by some of the banks. And it's like, that's sort of insane. Actually, Ben Kingsley sent me a heat map. He sent me first the one from Melbourne, but then there's one for Sydney. And it's showing growth over since 1990. And Potts Point and that little peninsula there in postcode 2000, is the best long-term performer for capital growth. Absolutely the best. Stands out. And yet it's right in that postcode. So this is one thing I've never really understood with the banks, you know, how they'll black ban some things and won't black ban others. And so they've got a different idea of risk, in my view, to some degree, than real, you know, actually what happens. Yeah, I think, you know, banks aren't, all banks are not saying, well, we're not going to lend anything in this postcode. You know, they are going down to a point now where they're going, well, we're not going to lend to certain developments, mm. you know. So they've seen enough of that development. They know what's happening in that building and they say that's a problem building. Oh, yeah, what- but it's, it's not just that though as well. I mean, some banks just look at their portfolio and say, at their loan book and say, right, well, we actually own too much of that. You know, that we have too many clients or customers that actually own in that building. We our exposure is too high. Yeah, that's not so much about the risk of the building, though, is it? That's just purely that. That's just risk management on their part. Well, I mean, it's probably part to play in it. I mean, they're trying to risk. We've already got enough in this building, but you know, if you were smart and you're at the top of the bank and you're looking at reducing risk, you know, I do think the banks are going to go here because, you know, end of the day, they don't get an extra. They don't charge the customer more interest. If it's a riskier asset, yeah. they get the same interest. So they get the same return. So yeah, if they're lending one. money mm. to, you know, a great investment, they get 4.8%, you know, they but get their if money back. A, well, yeah. And they get their money back. Yeah. But if you lend it to a poor investment, the risk of getting your money back is much higher Yeah, and you're only getting the same interest rate. So banks are going to have to be smarter as well and say, well, you know, risk versus reward. And this is why when people talk about lending market being tighter, um, I mean, just in the last month, we're getting same day and next day approvals, formal approvals on loan docs right now. When the customers, you know, got all their line, their, their ducks lined up, um, we're getting loans through quicker than probably ever. So, you know, it, it does vary across, you know, the market. So if someone is in a great position, everything's right, and they're buying a good asset, the banks want to do that loan, mm. you know. But if someone's pushing the the envelope all the way to the end or there's problems with their work or there are problems with their spending, um, banks are running and yeah. they don't want those loans. So, you know, you've got to always be careful, you know, when you blanket the market and think that everyone's happening everywhere. Yeah. It will be interesting to see whether banks start, you know, assessing the asset quality. That that will be interesting, you know, more on a micro level rather than just deciding that they don't like a postcode or a building. But um, but it is one of the reasons actually that I'm really incensed about Labor's negative, negative gearing policy. So there's a bit of a slight segue here because it's going to encourage more investors to enter into the most risky segment of the property market. And, you know, I don't want to talk too much about that now, but it's certainly 
a real worry in terms of this whole idea of risk and the whole idea of can you get the money and what should you get the money for and when you're buying property, you know, having an awareness that they don't all do the same thing. You know, there are some that lose money, as we all know now, and there are some that make money. And so I just think that we all need to be very, very careful about what we borrow and what we spend it on. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people would say, oh, share market's riskier than property market. And I would probably say it's the opposite because, you know, uh, with the share market, if you do want to get out, you can get out. Yes, you could lose a lot of money fast, but you've not leveraged that investment. And I think the biggest mistake people can make in the property market is just going out and buying any property because you get a property. And I think you know, the, the people who have done that are now kind of feeling the pain and they're starting to realize that I know we probably don't need to bang this drum our listeners, because we always bang that drum. But, you know, I think the the negative gearing debate has been something that keeps popping up this year because it is a big concern for people about what the impact could be, you know, for the Australian economy, for jobs, for all sorts of flow on effects. Now, we hope that you've enjoyed the highlights from our first 25 episodes. We're going to include the links in the show notes for all the episodes that we've mentioned. You can also download our free checklist on behavioural biases. Just head to the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au. And remember to get in touch. We'd love to hear about what your biggest aha moment has been from this episode. You can make contact with us via the website. There's a contact form on the website. We'd love to hear from you. Tune in to our next episode when we interview somebody a little bit different. Cameron McQueen works for a development company in Melbourne and they specialise in the Chinese investor. Oh, drum roll. Now, there's a lot of fear and negative press around Chinese investment and, you know, some of it may well be well-founded, but you'll have to listen to the episode to find out what they're looking for, why they're buying here, what they're buying and whether or not we should be scared. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk and edited by Gordy Fletcher. And thank you so much for joining us and letting us your eardrums throughout 2018. We've absolutely enjoyed bringing everything to you. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for your messages. Thank you for your reviews. And we're looking forward to more and better in 2019. And I second that. It's been an amazing year and we do appreciate every single one of our listeners for supporting us. We can't wait to bring you some even better content in 2019. And a happy new year. Happy new year. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.